Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. It was Oscar Wilde who once said, If ever I get married, I shall certainly try to forget the fact. But what if the doubts occur before the wedding, or in fact, on the morning of the nuptials? So Sally Muirden explores this notion in her novel, Wedding Puzzle. So Sally, welcome, and I should say welcome back to 3CR. Yeah, thanks very much. It's great to be back here, David. But you were... uh, Interviewing here before. Yeah, I did have in a past some, life. Yes, I had some shows here. One called Art Makers in the nineteen eighties. Lovely. So Sally knows all about three CR, but we have your character in this novel, Beth Shaw. She's about to get married, but there's something contributing to her confusion. What's that? Uh, well, she has received a letter um, from an old school friend the evening before the wedding that. Um, makes her very uncertain about whether she is loved by her fiancé. May I read that letter yeah, out? Yes, you may. It's a little note, just a little note. Dear Beth, you should know some things before it's too late. Jordan asked me to marry him a few days before he proposed to you. If my answer had been yes, then you wouldn't be the lucky girl. If he can exchange one for another so easily... Then what are his feelings worth? Sign <laughs> Tracy. <laughs> so, all of a sudden, uh, what does that do to your character? Uh, well, she's, um, she's of course, in shock. And at first she thinks it's a joke. Uh, and then um, something about the letter sinks into her and brings back a lot of memories from the past. And she begins to believe what she's read in, in the letter. Well, we'll get into these memories of the past in a minute. But it sort of then raises uh, two other people in her life. There's uh, Jordan, her fiancé, and Tracy, uh, etc. Now, Jordan's a different character in terms of his nature. What's he like in terms of his attitudes and such like? Uh, he's very easygoing and confident. And he's, he was... Um, Tracy and Beth were both at school with Jordan and he was then a hot catch, if you know what that means. I guess you do. And um, so... Um, He's um, he was very sporty, and Tracy was very sporty, and they were um, they were a couple at school um, for a few years, and um, teenage sweethearts. Um, so um, yeah, Jordan Jordan is um, very different from Beth, who is more introspect, introspective and, and doubtful about herself, um, so and, and shy. How, how does one cope with past lives, so to speak, like that? It's it's sort of in the immediate past, so it's. You can't simply forget it. No, I guess, well, um, Beth has held on to the past and she hasn't lived her life fully in the past so that when she meets Jordan years later, when she's 23 at a a, a Frankston creche where he's working as a childcare worker, um, she's still... She's still in love with him, or she's still infatuated with him um, as she has been when he was her heartthrob at high school. So she hasn't really grown up and she still wants to live those... But she has grown up and she's... She studied feminism at, at university and, and part of her is university Beth and the other, ha- the other half of her is teenage Beth who was no- nicknamed Chlorine Beth at school. 
because she's a swimmer. She's a swimmer. But it's so hard then to sort of get rid of... It's, it's almost like getting rid of the past and, and as a child. How easy is it to do that? No, no, it's it's not that easy, and especially when all the people from her school, their, their school are coming back on the wedding day for the wedding because Jordan is so sociable that he's stayed friends with his past girlfriends mm. and he's had quite a few of them. And most of the girls he's gone out with are in the same class. Um, it's quite incestuous. Uh, and yet he's not hes not a bad character. He's, in, in his, no, he's, he's fairly He's charming and he's, he's gentle and affectionate and he doesn't... He, he believes that once you love someone, you always do. So he's going to hold on to those girls and sometimes have reruns with them. Well, it, it also raises that notion of what love actually means in adolescence as mm. opposed to being in adulthood. Um, but you've also then got this relationship with Tracy, which mm. is as important because they were at primary school together. There was a chance that they would be separated when they went into secondary school, except circumstances bring them together again. But there's this lovely line Tracy says to Beth on going into secondary school, Beth, I need to make some new friends first up at Mornington. And Mum says, I'll have a better chance if I'm seen not to be taken. Yes, well, that was very perhaps very hurtful for Beth to hear that. But at the same time, she was realistic and she she uh, began to make her own friends. Um, I think with Tracy, it's like a first love object for Beth. Um, but at the same time, as they grow older, Tracy represents... Beth stays attached to Tracy, even though they're not close friends, because Tracy represents what Beth would like to be herself, but she doesn't have the confidence to be. And so uh, Tracy becomes her um, her idol at school, and Beth lives through her, and um, she becomes a spectator of what of, of Tracy's achievements in the sporting. But in, in many ways, arena. Tracy is uh, Beth's significant other during those adolescent years, so to speak. It's not sexual or anything, no. but it's very meaningful and very important. It, it is very, it is because she doesn't live fully her own life. She's not able to live fully. And, and she says that um, Tracy's carrying her feelings for her, but Tracy wouldn't even know that she's carrying Beth's feelings for her. And and Tracy, for, for Beth, it's more exciting to watch Tracy making out with Jordan on the athletics field than it is for um, Beth to be able to get out there and, and have some relationships herself. And the breadth and scope of their lives together, uh, Tracy and and Beth basically impinges on their future, and but actually does Beth truly understand Tracy? Because there's uh, Tracy makes decisions later on that would seem to suggest that Beth hasn't really seen the true Tracy. Um, yeah, I think um, tra Beth is um, she's quite naive and she's a little she doesn't have a good perspective of things like that and I think you're, I think you're correct but in the process of getting married and the wedding day it is a rite of passage for Beth and she does learn a lot of things and I think she does learn to individuate on that day and through the things that happen on that day. There's also the atmosphere at the school which is very competitive and there there's actually another character in this story and that's Vera who's another athlete and Vera in later years had a, a fling with a, um, a Russian athlete etc <laughs> who was married so that speaks to her values but they actually uh, well there's a, a bit of a, a race run to win Jordan's favour but that speaks to the social uh, mm. arena in which they're involved and the values there. 
Um, yes, I think there's a lot of romancing through American TV. Well, it's, it's partly based on my own experience of the 70s at school. And um, I think we, we uh, watched an enormous amount of mainstream American conservative TV, things like Happy Days. So um, those kind of um, ideals and values infiltrate the characters and, and where they go with romance and um, so there is a race and and um, Jordan says if you can go if you can beat Tracy you can go out with me and this uh, boast goes up the up the peninsula Food chain. To, yeah to, to Frankston High School where a sprint princess called Vera hears about it and she decides that, that she'll have a, a go at getting the coveted prize. But what does this say about their values and attitudes? It seems terribly unrealistic. It is, it is terribly unrealistic and that's why you've got a situation that that can happen on the wedding day when um, when Beth still has all these feelings that she hasn't resolved from um, from high school and she has to deal with them and decide whether she really wants which which Jordan does she really want the the teenage Jordan or the or the real Jordan and the, well, the real imperfect Jordan. But also who she is as a person, the uh, adolescent still coming to terms with her school years, or or is it possible to escape your school years? Um, yeah, I think you, you can move beyond them, but they stay with you, don't they? Like memories always. They, they always influence you. you. Now, the interesting thing here is Beth does get a chance to confront Tracy, which is not the um, sort of pinnacle um, and of the novel. Um, and she finds out really what Tracy's values are. She's married to Rich. Now, who is Rich and what does it say about Tracy? Um, well, Tracy has become religious at, at some stage and um, well she's going out with a trainee minister and they're working in at the Wesley Mission in Broken Hill um, so Tracy's got a different set of values she's moved on from school um, they meet at the, they meet on the beach where Beth goes for a long walk along the beach Port Seafront Beach waiting for Jordan to arrive at the wedding and she doesn't expect Tracy to turn up to the wedding because she thinks Tracy's written this awful letter and she'd never turn up but Tracy does turn up and they um, Tracy's got a complete. Tracy's really pleased to see Beth, and Beth is surprised. Um, and then they're they're overtaken by a whole lot of kids from the Portsea Children's Camp. So <laughs> we run but, onto the beach with it to to chase a giant beach ball. But then it it leads into then um, where this letter came from, etc., or uh, doubt and uncertainty. Mm. So which then means that perhaps Beth has been over thinking the situation is a possibility yeah I, I think a lot a lot of the stuff is taking place in, in Beth's, Beth's head yeah. uh, in her um, anxiety insecurity and in her ima incredible imagination um, but I want the reader to make up their mind about whether Jordan is um, is guilty or not because I think there's enough clues in there and of course it's in the first person so we don't actually see we, ca we can't actually hear what Jordan is thinking we can only um, assume yeah. and Beth imposes things so when Jordan doesn't return her call and there's the little things like that yes. but there's um, the bridal party standing in the way so Angus the best man sort of defers uh, Beth's call what should we read into that and all of these sorts of things permeate the novel but there's also some lovely imagery in here and there's one that's delightful um, Beth has got her bridal veil and she takes it out on the Port Sea Beach 
My caper was short-lived, however. A ghoulish cry tore the air, and whisking wings clipped my ears. Terrified, I flinched and hunched over. Why I didn't grab hold of my veil, I will never know, but my instinct was to protect my person first. Crazed by the stench of sweet blossoms, the shrewd seagull clawed my pillbox cap possessively, and in one upward motion, winched the entire adornment from my head. I looked up to see my veil shimmering above me like a jellyfish kite. I hollered in protest, but the gull couldn't care less. It flew over the water with its loot. Other screeching birds decided to investigate. A chase ensued between several manic gulls. Eventually, the marauder was attacked sideways by another bird and forced to land on the pier. I scurried out along the boards, confident of retrieving the precious object. As more gulls swooped down, the raiders flapped its powerful wings and knocked the others away. Mr. Snatchet Gull then partnered up with another big gull. These two bullies displayed some teamwork. They were scaring away the other birds and eventually they bore the booty aloft and beyond my reach overhead a fierce skirmish resulted in the two birds effectively pulling the cap and veil apart. Mr. Snatchet Gull took custody of the edible part and swooped inland to a tall fir tree. The other offender flew over the sea, clawing his bunch of shredded toll. This seagull eventually dropped the tull into deep water. It was too far away for me to think of swimming out to salvage it, although the tide might bring it in later on. It bobbed on the surface like a torn fishing net. I love that scene. Oh, that's great. Well, Angus, the the um, best man, actually goes for a swim and he brings in the veil and he, he shows it to, to Beth and says, is this your veil? Did you throw it away? And she has to explain. But I think that's symbolic. Um, that scene is symbolic of, of Beth actually losing control of the wedding because the things she's said and the choices she's, she's made have, met, have made her lose control of the wedding and everyone else has been affected by her doubt, including her fiancé, Jordan. And um, she's also worried about the reaction of the others. I mean, Angus, the best man, seems to be carefree. He goes off and in board shorts, you know, needs yes. to have a swim no, before the Everyone wedding. else is fine about the wedding, um, but, but Beth manages to turn it a little bit um, and of course, people have people go to a wedding. They've all got their own agendas, and they they can be interfering. and And some people can be envious and do and say the wrong thing. And and so all of a lot that of miscommunication on a wedding day comes up during the course of wedding puzzle. Now we're going to have to finish the interview there, unfortunately. And the listener is actually going to have to get the book and read it for themselves to find out how this is all resolved in the end. So Sally, thank you very much for coming in today. Thank you very much, David. Ewan. That was great. Uh, we are switching from uh, a novel uh, involving a wedding now to a book called Choice Words, which has been getting some great reviews around uh, Australia. It's a collection of writing about abortion, and it's edited by Louise Swin. It's published by Alan and Unwin. And my guest is Louise Swin. Welcome to 3CR's Published or Not, Louise. Hello. Uh, the abortion debate between pro-choice and pro-life supporters has a long history. So why this pro-choice book and why now? Yeah, I think that, um, well, the interesting thing, the publisher at Alan Unwin, Kelly Fagan, had this kind of idea because a friend of hers had tried to access an abortion and found it very, very difficult. And I think Kelly, working in the field of books, um, sort of thought tried to look around for a book that might help her friend to, you know, kind of make sense of it all and realised there aren't actually that many books talking about women having abortions and choice um, and kind of normalising it, at, you know, accepting that 
quite a large percentage of women have abortions, that often these are women who've got children already, that these are, you know, older women sometimes, not necessarily that kind of cliche of the teenage, the, uh, you know, the, the kid at school who accidentally gets pregnant. Um, well, that's when, what prompted a friend looking for an abortion. Can I yeah. ask which state that was in? Yeah, so that was in Tasmania where, okay. yeah, it w- it's legal but not necessarily easy. Okay, there's a, a lot of disparity between laws mm. and I, I think you've uh, on record as saying that when you took on this project you were actually su- surprised. How yeah, I had no idea. I just had no idea and I just I actually didn't realise that it was still illegal in parts of Australia, which it still is now. I mean, when we f- first started the project... Um, abortion was illegal in Queensland as well, but now it's legal in Queensland. But it's still illegal in New South Wales, which is our yeah. largest state. And but, but when you, know, you say legal now in Queensland, only since October yeah, 2018. and it doesn't make it year. necessarily easy to actually yeah. access abortion. It's very different depending on where you live. If you're, you know, if you're regional, for example, or if you're, it can be very expensive as well for reasons that you know you might have to travel a long way. Um, but for some people it's relatively easy. So we wanted to kind of, I think Kelly's idea was around telling stories, kind of uncovering it, making it much more of a kind of normal thing that we can talk about because women have these things all the time. And so her thing was let's just bring it out into the open a bit more and make it a bit more of a kind of a warmer, more generous conversation around it rather than this kind of very scary. I mean, I I went to a Catholic school and, um, you know, it was always, not not something that you talked about. It was very, very uh, negative connotations. It was very, very evil people had abortions. And that's a thread through quite a few people's <clears throat> accounts. And, look, it is a balance between personal accounts and there are uh, legal and historical articles as well. But <laughs> I'm going to highlight one that leads the collection that opens. Uh, Claudia Cavan, she talks about having an abortion at mm. 17. Mm. Uh, I mean, that, that struck me. Wow, that was a sensational mm. one to start with. But then we go into Shirley Barrett talking about the history of abortion at the turn of the last century, so late 19th, early 20th century. Whoa, mm. the gruesome minefield and Dr. Frederick Marshall getting hauled up for... Uh, that was it was like reading something from uh, the Jack the Ripper era. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. very Jack the Ripper. That's a good call. And the thing that's so interesting about that is that it's not that long ago in the yeah. history of the world. Those stories are really recent. We wanted to make it so that uh, we had these first-person stories of um, people who've undergone abortions, and some people have really positive responses to their abortions and some people had a hard time for all sorts of reasons. So we wanted those personal stories but we also wanted the non-fiction and the historical so that whatever kind of reader you are you can kind of dip in and find something that is interesting to you and I think some people are going to find the history of abortion in for example in Victoria, Gideon Hay sort of piece about that, more interesting than, than others. I mean I certainly love to know all of that kind of background and just the interesting ways that they used to kind of um, they used to write that women died it was never they never wrote died of sort of you know abortions gone wrong they would write yeah all sorts of sort of strange ways because it was you know it was even though they knew that these things went on it was not it was not it was so very much frowned, parent, frowned no, upon. Peritonitis, but not for any particular reason. Now, yeah. interesting you should mention Gideon Hay because uh, this morning I was thinking, well, which part of this book uh, would I like to emphasise? 
And I thought it would be Victoria's contribution to mm. legalising abortion. And it's in the chapter, or the, the piece by Gideon Hay, and it's about Justice Clifford Menhennet, who mm. was 50, 56 years old when he made this sensational ruling in 1969. And if I could just read the paragraph mm. at, uh, at the end of this. When Menhennet sat down, this is in the court, Abortion was a crime tantamount to murder and nigh unspeakable. So this is 1969 in Victoria. In a state where an entrenched conservative premier was shored up by a rusted-on Catholic vote. When Justice Menhennet stood up at the end of a long technical uh, monologue, abortion was, under simple and certain strikingly flexible criteria, lawful, and his standard became the became the basis of evaluation for the next half century. I didn't know that. This, this yeah. sort of um, he had apparently peaked when he is um, he looked at uh, the bank nationalisation case, but he certainly hadn't gone to a Catholic school and he had no qualms about saying, "Yeah, it's this is more flexible than the law looks. It's we can make this legal." And when you think about that, I mean, that was before I was born, and now still in New South Wales. It's, it's still it's a crime still because what happened crime. in 2017? Yeah. The, it was voted down. Uh, unlike Queensland, uh, the, it is still in the Crimes Act to have an abortion. So yeah. you've got people who think that uh, Victoria is not a progressive state. I uh, know. New South Wales, it's still a crime. So what is the hope and aim? Tanya Plibersek mm. is the uh, has written the foreword here. What is the hope and aim of this book in uh, practical political terms? Well, I guess that, I mean, Tanya Plibersek, it was amazing. She's fantastic. And obviously this fits in with her her agenda um, and she's got a lot of really interesting things to say about women's rights and this sits within her, that. Um, and I guess that from the perspective of Kelly, whose idea this book was, and then going forward, the Ellen and Unwin and myself and all the people involved, I think the idea was that people would be able to read it and realise that, it, firstly, that this is a subject that we can talk about. I mean, even on the most base level, this was definitely not the word. When you read the uh, word. stories like, like Catherine Devney, I mean, that's very funny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and she comes at it from a particularly Catherine Devney kind of way. Yeah. It's very, very funny and, you know, and for her it was it was a, a fantastic thing that she could access it in that way uh, and she puts that incredible spin on it to make it so positive and certainly the piece that you talked about the opening piece from Claudia Carvin which is just short you know and she responded when asked within quite literally within minutes with such positivity she said I would love the opportunity to thank the people who made this possible for me when I was in a, such a silly position and, just and it's such a positive kind of and this happened and then my life went on, and now we all know Claudia Carvins, yeah. this fantastic actress. It was courageous for her to reveal that. I'm just yeah. talking with Louise Swin about her collection of writing on abortion called Choice Words, published by Alan and Alman. Uh, just to continue that, though, in terms of these uh, non-uniform laws around Australia, is the aim uh, to bring about uniformity and to take all legislation regarding abortion out of the Crimes Act? Uh, I mean, that would be fantastic, yeah. Obviously... 
in as much as books can be political, yeah, you're hoping to move the conversation along so that the gender can be addressed. And I hope that that's what we do with books is that we get people talking and thinking and then and then hopefully it moves up into the echelons of the political sphere and people start going, well, you know, it's it's quite literally something to hold up, something to leave lying around, something that people can read. You know, dads can read it. It's not oh, just it's- for women, you know. Um, and that's the thing. It's like as soon as we know that these are people who we know who are having these things Absolutely. in it. Just, and that's it just it. when it affects it. them, there are figures in there saying one in three Australian mm. women. Yeah. Uh, so it, it hits very close to home. Yeah. And the um, in terms of the consequence of uniform laws, though, that abortion may be available uh, through all public hospitals mm. eventually in the future. Well, that's what Labor's so hoping to push at the yeah. moment. Yeah. yeah. Now, that's going to raise the ire of the pro-life lobby, and some of their ire is captured in this book, particularly Mm. walking to the clinics. Now, the pro-life people are now banned in Victoria from being within 150 metres. But some of the colourful descriptions, I had no idea they hold up little plastic dolls of fetuses Mm. in these oversized uh, dimensions and wave it in the face of women coming in uh, Mm. to the abortion clinic. I just, I didn't realise that happened. I knew they were mm. hassled, there were placards, but not some of those tactics. Yeah, it's very intense. I mean, to to try to look at it from their perspective, they actually, you know, they think that you're condemning these, um, what they see as babies to hell. Yeah. So they 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 often think it's their job to do everything within their power. They think that they are on the side of right. And so they're actually not intending. And I think that that's, there's a great piece by Amy Gray. Um, and I, I think that they're not, they're not necessarily intending to um, ups. They can't see past the fact that they're trying yeah. to save life. And there's absolutely no understanding of the life that, that could be turned into a misery. Well, that's it. And Amy attempts to understand, and very sincerely mm. understand mm. too, by engaging long term with, uh, well, I say long term over, it must have been a number of sessions. Yeah, she does an incredible job of getting view. inside the head. Yeah, and really honestly wanting to understand. Yeah. So, and uh, uh, that's fascinating. <laughs> How far can she actually push this? Mm. Uh, Jenny Key, you interviewed her as well. That, yeah. That was how was she to interview? Oh, she's, you know, I mean, she's a, a massive personality. She's a really interesting woman. And the great thing about Jenny was that her story, you know, she had, uh, as she says, she had multiple abortions and that each one was different, you yeah. know, for different reasons uh, and that some of them were, were straightforward and that uh, the last one wasn't. Because uh, I think the first one was before she was married and then uh, others after she was married mm. and just really blunt and honest about the complications and the feelings of regret, but nonetheless. Mm. Uh, and then just uh, as we're on the home stretch here as far as time, just going back to Tanya Plibersek again, she starts with an anecdote that really uh, galvanised her to want to do something uh, about abortion law in this country. Uh, can we talk through that a bit, this woman in a rural or regional Queensland, who was married in an, in an unhappy relationship, and she had had complications, and she very nearly died of having to travel to a capital city. Um, I, I gather you spoke with Tanya uh, about that when you were uh, editing the the book. I didn't speak to Tanya till after till the launch. Actually, oh, the launch. yeah, she did. This... She bring that up that particular anecdote. Um, no, I mean she. Because she travels so much, she actually has quite a few of these kinds of, oh, right. you know, 
anecdotes. I mean, she meets so many women who who she wants to save their lives, and that's her. You know, that that's exactly right. They they have to travel for so far, and you know, you hear about babies that get born because there's no access. Yeah. Born, but despite the fact that they're not. Nobody's able to look after them yeah. and nobody's in a position to. Yeah. And she makes a very clear point that in 2013, um, the then Labor government put RU486 for medical abortions on the PBS mm. for the first time. But that is still difficult to access, mm. even though it's... You know, Especially in regional places. Yeah. I mean, certainly if you're in Melbourne, it's quite easy. You know, is what's reasonably easy. And in fact, there are places you can access it, you can kind of organise to get it over over the phone if, if if everything is right and it's a couple of pills you know in very early stages it can be as straightforward as that you know and um and then there's the whole other end of it where it's not straightforward and so hopefully we've covered we've covered all of the bases and shown that it's not it's not a straightforward discussion absolutely it's very complex you've done a wonderful job of weaving it together thank you uh, around the theme as an editor what did you have to brief them very specifically or was it more spontaneous the time no of? it was just i wanted no. to see what they mm. they had yeah right. so the book we're talking about is a collection of writing about abortion called choice words it's edited by louise swin forward by tanya plibersek and it's published by alan and unwin and i was talking with sally Mew about her novel Wedding Puzzle and that was from Transit Lounge. That takes us out. Ewan. We'll see you next week, David.